Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent, author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, and Banneker Bones and the Alligator People. Uh, both books are available now as paperbacks and ebooks. The first book, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, is available as an audiobook. And the ebook is free to download uh, whenever you're listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, Banneker Bones is an 11 year old biracial boy genius detective, uh, and his cousin, Ellicott Skullworth, comes to stay with him in Latimer City. And wouldn't you know it, they're attacked by giant robot beings, so obviously the only possible response to that could be to get jetpacks and EMP blast rifles and track those giant robot beings down to their giant robot hive. It's a wonderful, exciting adventure uh, featuring an interracial family, which is essential to me because I'm uh, a member of an interracial family. uh, and I want uh, I want a story that features characters like me, but not like me, because tragically I have yet to hunt down a giant robot bee. And in the sequel, while well, the boys are back at it, this time they're hunting down alligator people. And there is a third yet-to-be-revealed book uh, that uh, will be revealed soon and very soon. Uh, under the super-secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some horror stories for older readers, such as my young adult novel, All Together Now a Zombie story, um, which is very much uh, slow-moving, rotting uh, zombies. If you like The Walking Dead, you're going to enjoy Altogether Now, a uh, zombie story. You might also check out the companion novel, All Right Now, a short zombie story. Uh, if you want to go for really, really adult horror, I've also written The Book of David, which is a five-volume serial horror novel. Uh, if you're curious about that, it's basically me doing my Stephen King impersonation. Uh, it's a about an atheist who buys a haunted house that then begins to give him religious visions involving flying saucers. So it is just out there. Uh, if you're curious about that and you are an adult or are, have the permission of an adult to read adult books, uh, check out the Book of David, the first of the five um, chapters within the serial novel. Um, I call them chapters, but the fifth chapter is actually the longest novel I've ever written. But the uh, Book of David, Chapter 1, the e-book, is free to download whenever you're listening to this, wherever fine e-books are sold. So you can dip your toe in, try it out with Chapter 1. If you're having fun, by golly, Chapter 2, 3, and 4 are waiting for you, and 5 are waiting for you. Uh, Today, uh, my guest is Sharon M. Draper, uh, and it is... Uh, one of the uh, most wonderful conversations about writing I think I've, I've ever had. Uh, Sharon M. Draper, you know, sometimes they, they say don't meet your heroes, don't meet writers you admire. So far, knock on wood, with this podcast, all the authors I've met have been swell, uh, at least during the, the time I was talking to them from the from start to finish. Uh, nothing but positive experiences, but uh, this episode uh, was really wonderful for me to get to record, and we did some things um, that we don't normally do. We used a, a software to allow us to record uh, this interview by phone, uh, which is why you'll notice the audio quality is a little bit different. And the software kept dropping out on us. In fact, at one point, uh, we continued talking uh, for well over an hour before we realized that we we'd been the only one uh, the only ones enjoying that part of the conversation so 
this is one episode where I uh, unequivocally have, have, have had the advantage of learning more uh, than you, and I got to enjoy that just for myself. There are some uh, other technical issues a as we go, uh, but there's so much wonderful information packed within that I've just edited around those uh, glitches as best I can uh, to present uh, an uninterrupted uh, program for you. Uh, and um, Mrs. Draper uh, told me that she had such a good time that when her next book comes out, uh, she's going to send me an advanced reader copy so I can do a deep dive on it and prepare some quality questions. We'll get some better software in place, uh, and uh, hopefully she'll uh, she'll come back at that time, uh, and we'll we'll have an in-depth conversation again. Uh, for today, please enjoy this wonderful interview with Sharon M. Draper. Sharon M. Draper, thanks uh, so much for, for making the time uh, to do this today. Uh, and usually the, the first thing I ask people is because I'm really bad about summarizing other people's books and other people's biographies. So if we could just start with you telling the esteemed audience a little bit about your background, a kind of an overview of your career. Um, I started out as a classroom teacher. I taught middle school and high school for 25 years. Uh, I taught grades 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. Actually, I never got to 11th graders because that was American history and, I mean, American literature. And for some reason, I never got to teach grade 11. But I taught 7 through 12. And um, I taught the reading and the writing and the, the um, grammar that nobody teaches anymore, and we read stories, and we read books, and we talked about literature, and I was very, very strong on teaching of writing, what you had to do to make your words sound correct, and um, so from there, I, after I retired, well, actually, before I retired, I wrote the very first book. It was very near the end of my retirement. And um, I wrote the first book, which was Tears of a Tiger, and it did well. And it did surprisingly well. And it won awards. I did not even know there were book awards, you know, of any significance. I just wasn't even aware of that world. And it's like, wow, gee. I found a new thing. So that's how I got started with with uh, the writing. I read uh, something apocryphal I wanted to make sure I ask you about. And, and let me know if this is if this is correct or if this is just kind of the, the myth uh, that's been built up around you. Um, but I had read that you originally had entered a short story in a literary contest at the encouragement of a student, and that won you $5,000 to have that right. Exactly. That is not apocryphal. Um, I entered this contest kind of on a dare from a student, and I won first prize. And I had never won anything, you know, not even the prize inside the cereal box, nothing. You know? <laughs> and um, uh, I was surprised, but not... I was surprised that I had actually won something because, you know, to win means to take you to the very top, and I was surprised at that. But I knew that the story was good. So I was surprised that they chose it, but I knew that the story had quality. <laughs> 
how did that uh, change your um, relationship with writing, or, or did it from that moment forward? Not really. Um, I continue to teach. I continue to go to work every day. Um, I, 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 I won, uh, for that time, $5,000 was a lot of money. And that was astounding. Of course, the transmission fell out of the car a couple of weeks later. So it was like, okay. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, um, and, you know, I had a family and children and, and lots of things to do. And my career was in teaching. So it was very gratifying. This is a good quote. It was very gratifying to know that I could write and that I could be recognized for my writing. But I did not yet consider myself a writer. So when did that change? What's the what's the path that takes you from that moment uh, to publishing Tears of a Tiger? Um, well, like I said, because I was a writing teacher and because I was always talking about to students about what could make a story better, what could make a story more effective. Um, it was, let me see how I can explain this. Um, it was a natural growth process to go from writing that short story to trying to write a book. I wrote that during study hall. You know, I don't know if they even still have study hall. But the kids would have study hall, which means I was the monitor, which means I had time too. And so I would write little pieces of it. And I sent Tears of a Tiger to 25 publishing companies when I finished it. I let my students read it. They all said it was fairly good and news is not bad, which is great praise from a ninth grader. <laughs> sure. And so I sent the, the manuscript of Tears of a Tiger to 25 publishing companies. I did not know the proper way that one is supposed to submit writing to a company. Um, I just picked the names of companies out of um, a book of, you know, how to get published. And I got 24 rejections and one yes, and it was Simon & Schuster. Sorry, I'm sure the other 24 companies are, have been kicking themselves this many years later. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> because it's very tough for Simon & Schuster, because that, uh, uh, that one went on to win the uh, Lily Scott uh, King Award, correct? Yes. And that's it was the very first time this award was given. Um, at the time, it was called the Genesis Award, but they had to change the name because evidently somebody had already copyrighted that name or something. Um, so I think it's now called the New Talent Award. But it was the first time that it was given, and the company wasn't exactly sure what it meant except that it was something really, really good. 
because it was announced on the same day that they announced all of the big winners, the, you know, the Newberry, the Caldecott, those kinds of things. And I was basically unaware of all of those. And you've won the, the credit Scott King Honor author uh, twice at this point, correct? It was twice the honor and three times the, the um, um, what's it called, the second honor. Um, twice was the full honor and second time was the, uh, gee, I'm supposed to be able to think of the word, um, the secondary honor. What was second place for it? Let us uh, let us move vicariously uh, through you a little bit. What's it What's it like to be going from writing a book there in study hall um, to to winning uh, the Coretta uh, Sky King author uh, uh, honor um, and, and, to, and to go on and, and have your book become such a huge success? What is What is that experience? Well, it was a really pleasant journey because I wasn't aware of the destination. I didn't have any great plans for uh, my writing career, which I'm putting in quotation marks. <laughs> I just, um, I didn't know it was a, it was a joyous journey. Uh, I got to go to the ALA conference that that June, and the uh, where the award was given, and. We got to march in. All of the authors got to march in a line. And we walked in, and everybody stood up and applauded. And then we all sat up on this high table where they fed us wonderful food. And then I got to stand up and give a speech. And all of a sudden, I was, oh, man, I really like this. This is glorious. <laughs> That's everybody's dream. That's crazy. Right. But see, I didn't have expectations of, ooh, I hope I can do this or win this or achieve this. It was, oh, wow, this is so much fun. <laughs> it was completely different, the, the way that it was, that it happened. I learned as it occurred, and that made it wonderful. And obviously, that made an impression because you went on and you wrote the whole Hazelwood trilogy, among uh, many other novels that that, that you since published: the, the Jericho trilogy, the, uh, uh, the, the the Sassy books, the uh, the, the uh, Ziggy, and the, and the Black Dinosaurs. Just nonstop series. So you've been uh, very prolific uh, since that time. Or had you written some of those prior to Tears of a Tiger? No, no. All of them came after Tears of a Tiger. Um. There is one interesting little fact. The first chapter of Forged by Fire is the a variation of the short story that won the 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 contest. When the first won that writing contest. The very first thing, the short story that I submitted was a variation of what ended up being chapter one of Forged by Fire. 
Did that make you nervous at all, burying that, knowing that you, you know, you won the $5,000? No. That was a big deal? No. Like I, like I said, I didn't know what I was doing, so. But I knew that the, but I knew that the story was good. And so, um, I, I took that story because I had the characters in Tears of a Tiger, and Gerald was a minor character, but important. I took chapter one, I took that story, I made it chapter one of Forged by Fire, and then created the story for Gerald, who was a, a fairly minor character in Tears of a Tiger. And then I wrote the third one, The Darkness Before Dawn, to kind of finish up the, the trilogy. And did you always plan on, on making it a trilogy once you started the second book? No. So you just kind of wrote, did you write them as they came to you? At what point did you know they were starting Forged by Fire ended up being very successful as well, winning all kinds of awards. And I said, I think I like this writing thing. I might be good at it. So, uh, it seemed incomplete. And I wanted to focus on a girl character. So I used the, the girlfriend of Andy from the first book as the main character of the third one. And I said, well, gee, now I have a trilogy. But no, it was not planned. It was not something. Young writers today know that they're going to write trilogies. They have their agents call the publishing companies and say, I have this wonderful young writer who has a trilogy in mind. They know that there is such a thing. I didn't. I just, I wrote the first book and it was good. I wrote the second book and it might have been better. And so I wrote a third book and, oh my, I have a, tri a trilogy. How wonderful. Well, I know uh, that I've, I've been uh, reading about you and, and your process, and you've been teaching long enough then that, that you approached Tears of a Tiger with with intention. You, I know you wrote intentionally short chapters uh, and got drama right up front because you knew what kind of books the teens didn't like, correct? Correct. Um, the Mill on the Floss and Silas Marner are not popular books with high school students. <laughs> you know, the books that are still required reading. Um, David Copperfield is a wonderful book, but today's teenagers don't have the patience to read David Copperfield. It's a different reading audience. So I knew that my students needed uh, short, powerful chapters but also very literary. They get the literary part of the reading experience without even knowing it because they get involved in the characters and the, and the action. So how does that differ when you're writing for um, a younger audience, for, for, you know, the middle grade audience? Um, when I started writing the Ziggy and the Black Dinosaurs books, um, my children were about the age of the kids in the story. Um, and they got into, especially my boys, got into 
all kinds of ridiculous and silly adventures. And so I kind of had my own children in mind as I was writing this story about these little boys who discovered things and found things and and who learned something about their community, about their history, about themselves, but had fun doing it. And they never had to go outside of their neighborhood. I had to keep them in that safety zone because children that age can't go a long distance by themselves. And then, um, oh, I've got so many questions where I'm trying to oh, think, what's, 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 what's the best one to ask you? Oh, here's something I'd read. Uh, I read that as a, as a child, while we're, while we're talking about kids and reading, uh, that you had read every book in your elementary school's library. Is that one true or is that one apocryphal? That is pretty close to true. Um, it was, and it was the library down the street. I was, I was within walking distance of the public library. And from the time I was very young, three maybe, maybe younger, my mother would walk me every Saturday down the street to the library. And uh, at the time, uh, you could check out ten books, and which was even, it was too much for me to carry. But <laughs> my mother and I would come back with ten books, and I would read them all. And... um the next Saturday, we'd go back and we'd get some more. So the librarian got to know me, my family, the dog, the, you know, everything. <laughs> if I didn't show up on a Saturday, they would call and say, where are you? Are you okay? Are you sick? I've got a new book coming. So I just kind of devoured everything that was there on the elementary, you know, the, the how libraries are divided into the adult side and the children's side. So most of the books that were there on the children's side of the library, I had the opportunity to read. So I don't know if I read every single book, but I read hundreds of books uh, before they gave me the card that I could access the adult section and that I remember really clearly because I think you had to be 12 or 13 before you could check books out from the uh, adult side and I think I was 11 and the librarian said I have something for you and she gave me a card to check out books from the adult side of the library. It was the best gift ever. So a whole new world opened up. It's like all those books that were with the big, the thick books, you know, 600 pages and, and, um, so it was, it was, it was like giving me candy. <laughs> so I did quite a bit uh, I made quite a dent in the number of books at my local library. And that had to, I don't, did, I don't know if this is a chicken before the egg question, but they had to foster a, a 
a robe of reading that, that's lasted your whole life and, and you know took you into teaching English originally, uh, and then and then reading and, and now having taught all over the world. Do you remember when that that love of reading started? Was it then at the library? Or was it prior to that? Oh, oh yeah. Well, my mother read to me. She would read to me when I was very young. I remember sitting on her lap and she would read me stories and she would read me poetry and read to me. So reading was always very, very deeply inculcated into my essence. Oh boy, that's a good sentence. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what are your reading habits like now? Um, I can't read when I'm writing. Like, I can't write, go into my office and write several chapters and then say, oh, I think I'll take a break and read something. I can't do that because I have to have my own words, my own cadence, my own, they have to, it has to come directly from my head. And if I read, I'm influenced by whatever it is I'm reading. So I, I, I read after I have finished writing. So I will have six months of writing and then it'll be a while before I start writing again. So that's when I do my reading. And it, you couldn't even listen to an audio book during that time or? Is it just a complete shutout, or do you read nonfiction at all while you're writing? Um, well, sometimes, but not usually. Um, if I'm reading something, it's it, it would be nonfiction because it would be research for something that I'm writing. Um, for instance, I'm I'm looking at books about. Um, Egypt and I'm kind of skimming through books about Egypt because that's a story that I'm going to write somewhere down the line I went to Egypt several years ago I loved it I just loved it of all the places I've ever been Egypt was my favorite and so I told my guide I'm going to write a story about an Egyptian girl she said oh wonderful so occasionally I will skim through my uh the books I've started collecting on Egypt, but that's not like reading a novel. I cannot read a novel when I'm writing. I just can't. That makes sense. Um I have a similar problem with if I read someone else's novel a little bit of that rubs off on me and I you know, if I'm uh, reading a Toni Morrison, then I see my sentences get a little bit longer in my uh, my poor imitation of it, and I figure, well, you know, it, that's better than what I was going to write anyway. So <laughs> that's probably a positive thing <laughs> for my readers. Uh, it's just a risk I've learned to learn to to live with. <laughs> right. Uh, speaking of Toni Morrison, I just thought uh, they have compiled compiled her books and her essays and general writings in a book called The Source of Self-Regard. Uh, I bought it a couple of weeks ago, and just skimming through it, it's amazing. It's just got, you know, excerpts and 
her thoughts and some of her essays, the unpublished essays, it's really, really good. So that's on my table. Yeah, I've had to dig out a couple of hers and, and, and reread them here recently for, for obvious reasons, unfortunately. Yes, yes. And um, I have any funny questions uh, for you. I wanted to ask, um, well, let's let's start with the, with the White House because you've been honored at the White House six times. Is that right? Yes. Does that get old by like time number five? Or is it no. Just so <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. The first time was just so exciting and so, oh my goodness, I'm going to be at the White House. So I have met, um, I met President Bush, I met President Clinton, uh, I met President Obama. But he doesn't remember, I do. Because uh, it was so brief. It wasn't a long thing. And I was at the White House. There was one time where we were supposed to, where President Obama was supposed to give us a presentation. And um, he had to cancel because that was the day of an oil spill or a crisis in the Gulf, there was something that went on that was like, okay, this is very presidential. I don't have time to talk to a bunch of people in the Rose Garden. So we got to talk to some other people. And um, I sat at a table at a dinner once with Laura Bush. Um, and I sat, I was supposed to sit next to, I think it was George Bush. I was supposed to sit next to George Bush at uh, an event, but he couldn't come because there was some national emergency. So I talked to his, um, I believe it was his press secretary or his personal assistant, with someone who came and sat in his place, and I learned so much about how the how the White House works and how uh, they shut everything down after each election and everything. You know, it's completely closed down, and you start fresh with the new guy. And they, um, and so I learned a lot during that um, that dinner, the dinner that he did not come to. <laughs> so what's the uh, uh, for all the uh, authors who are listening who, who desperately want to uh, be invited to the White House one day one what's the best way to get invited and two once you get there how, how do you behave and how do you make sure uh, that you get invited back because it obviously went well the first five times <laughs> um, there's no way to, to to figure out how to get asked it just happens um, Laura Bush used to do the um, National Book Festival in Washington, uh, where authors were, you know, and I think they still do the book festival in Washington, but it's no longer done through the White House. I think it's been moved now to the Library of Congress, who kind of oversees it. But at the time that I went, Laura Bush was very interested in books, and that's how I got invited to these dinners, because 
I had, I was one of the featured authors. I got to speak at one of the national book festivals. And the speakers got to have dinner with the dignitaries. And so that's how I got seated at the table with, um, with Laura Bush and next to, to George Bush, who didn't come, but it was still cool. The dinner was good. <laughs> um, so to tell authors, you don't aim for that. That I, I tell authors, don't aim for the glory. My goodness. You'll get bored and you'll get tired and you'll get disappointed. You aim to write the very best piece that you can. The very best piece of writing for your audience. And if it is the very best, it will get noticed and it will rise to the top. You do not aim for, I'm going to write this book because I want to get invited to the White House. No. You write this book because you want the young people that you write for, or whatever your audience is, you want your audience to say, to hug the book when they finish it. That book was so good, I just want to hug it. That is what you aim for. That makes sense, and I, uh, I certainly, I, I just uh, uh, yesterday finished uh, Stella by Starlight, and that's very much how I felt afterwards. I, I wanted to hug that book. <laughs> oh, thank you. But Stella uh, by Starlight was was inspired by my father and my grandmother. Yeah, you had uh, to ask about specific books, but I can. Oh, no, I want to ask about them all. Uh, I'm going to pick your brain for as long as you'll put up with me. Sooner or later, you say, well, I've, I've had enough. I, this was lovely, but please, I, I, I need to do something else, and then I'll stop asking questions. But until then, by God. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> my, God, um, my, my morning is completely free. I read that you had, this is 1983 that you you. you um, your, your grandmother passed and you got a, a journal that she'd written uh, when she was 10. Do I have that right? Yes. Um, when I was a little girl, my grandmother lived in North Carolina. I lived in Cleveland, Ohio. But every summer, we would drive from Cleveland to North Carolina uh, to visit my father's mother and the other relatives in this little town that apparently I was related to all of them. Uh, it was, you know, that kind of very, very small town in North Carolina. And it was some of the happiest times that I could remember because growing up as a city girl, there were rules, there were standards, there was, my mother was very, very, um, What's the best word to use? My mother was very demanding on us as children uh, as far as being models of decorum. But when we got to the farm, my grandmother would say, why are you wearing shoes? You don't need your shoes. The world is clear. Do what you need to do. Um, you know, and she would say, I said, well, what time is bedtime? She said, whenever you get sleepy. Uh, what can I do? Sure, go on over there. You want to touch a cow? Here, I'll show you. Uh, 
that kind of thing. She was just so matter of fact and such a wonderful lady. And uh, it was a different kind of freedom because there weren't the rules and restrictions of um, of my very proper childhood. So I enjoyed being there, just being with her. Um, I remember the first time she gave us a glass of milk, and it was warm. And I kind of frowned at it because, you know, why didn't she, why'd she keep the milk out all night? Why wasn't it in the refrigerator? And I said, this milk is warm, Grandma. And she said, it just came out of the cow. <laughs> and I'm going, oh, okay. It, I had never made the connection. I knew that milk came from cows, but I had never made the connection that directly. That milk had just come out of that cow. And so um, it was delicious. And, you know, it wasn't pasteurizer. Sorry about that, esteemed audience. We had a slight technical difficulty, but I believe we've got it corrected now. Uh, so, Ms. Draper, we were talking about uh, Stella by Starlight, and I wanted to make sure I asked you about the uh, conflict in that story, because there's there's plenty of conflict with, with Stella and her, her family uh, and everything that's going on um, without uh, the introduction of the clan, but of course the uh, story opens uh, very dramatically with that, with Stella uh, witnessing the burning of the clan burning across uh, across the river. Uh, and so that kind of sets the tone, and then the clan is sort of uh, looming large through, throughout the first half of the novel on everything that's going on. So why was that the best place to open your story? And also, what are just some practical tips for discussing something as ugly as racism for a middle-grade audience? Um, it is difficult to discuss racism with young children, although uh, I when I talk to children in fifth and sixth grade, they are well aware of what racism is and where it exists. They see it all the time. They see it in their classrooms. They see it on the playground. They see it on television. They see it on all those videos on their phones that they're not supposed to be watching, but they do. Um, they see it everywhere. Uh, racism is rampant and because it's ugly and because it's awful, it's more noticeable than kindness sometimes. Um, kindness is often um, overlooked when one person helps another person or one person is kind to another person. But racism is ugly, so it gets noticed and it gets attention. So I think kids are aware that there that there are racial differences by the time they get to fifth or sixth grade. They are not sure what to do about it and but they are forming opinions about people and about life at this time. So in Stella I included uh the the racism of the clan at the beginning, but it it was not um well, I guess it does end up being overt. It's something that existed at this time in America. This is in the 30s in America. 
And uh, I'm happy to say that racism is now 100% gone in America. Oh, yeah, thank goodness. <laughs> yes, isn't it good that we've done that? So, um, so Stella sees racism from the point of view of a uh, of a child. She goes to a separate school. All the black children go to one school, and all the white children go to another school. Although they meet together at the candy shop before school to buy candy. And then one goes, uh, one group of children go to the right to their school and the other group of children go to the left. Um, Stella, Stella's school was based on the school that my father went to that he told me about. Um, his one room schoolhouse where he was taught, uh, very well and very strictly by a, a woman who Made them recite their timetables and 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 recite all of their math facts and, and you know with the rote old-fashioned way of rote teaching rote recital and how much he learned and he can still quote large large portions of the uh, the Constitution and the uh, in sections of the encyclopedia because that was the way that learning was taught. Children were very well educated um, in those segregated schools at the time. So Stella goes to this school, and, but she is well aware that the conditions are better, the physical conditions are better in the school that was set up for the white children. The, um, the white children, when they their books got old and out of date and dirty, were given to the black schools as leftovers and they were and th this is what they learned from were this, the books that had been given to them and my father told me about this and how well he was educated he was uh, extremely intelligent extremely well educated man and he graduated from these one room segregated schools in North Carolina do you the um um, you know, there's, we, when it comes to long, sad history of, of racism, there, there's no end of, of, of terrible things you can pull up and say that here's a, a clear example. Uh, but something that really struck me with, with Stella by Starlight is by comparison uh, to a lot of historical things we could point to relatively minor, um, although it's certainly not within the story. As Stella recalls, um, she's, you know, she's jumping over cracks uh, with her mother, uh, and she jumps into a pile of mud, or a pile of puddle of mud, uh, and she sprays this white doctor who then becomes very upset and just slaps the heck out of her so hard that, that she's crying, uh, and she can't uh, say much about that, but just accept it. And her mother, uh, you know, that, that would be horrifying for me uh, um, as a child, but as a, now a parent, uh, reading that and knowing that her mother is standing there, and she just has to take that and accept that this, this grown man can walk around and has the... Um, you know, the, the right to just smack her, her kid and there's no recourse for her. I, I thought that really um, drove home that idea of racism in a way that maybe a more overt, overt uh, example would not have. Yeah, the fact that children were taught how they were supposed to act. Uh, the black children were taught how they were supposed to act around the white community. 
there were certain standards of behavior that kept them safe. And to go outside of those standards of behavior were, was dangerous. And we weren't yet into the 60s where there started to be outcries for freedom and equality. At the time, there was not a whole lot that uh, a family could do. The mother, the father, um, the child, you know, the children in the family just wanted to survive and be happy and live. And so they followed these unwritten rules that everybody knew. Um, they didn't like them, but at that time, there was nothing they could do about them. Something I thought that you you did very well. Um, a, lot, a lot of things you did very well, obviously. Uh, but the one thing uh, that, that that stuck out to me is that the the white characters aren't a monolith. There's a candy store owner who's very kind. She's equally kind to the the black children and the white children. Uh, later, when there's a fire, there's white characters that, that rush in to help, uh, just as just as there are black characters. Why was it important to make at least some of those white characters sympathetic? Um, well, my, my, I write my books for all children. I don't write just for black children. I don't write just for white children. I write for all children. And we are assuming that, that the children that are reading the books are in integrated schools, living in an integrated world. And I'm saying that with quotation marks, but yes, you know. Sure. Uh, but it's important that they see that and that they see the these were the standards and the mores that were necessary at the time. And I wanted them also to see that not everybody um, that was white was evil or out to get them. And so that's why I kind of worked with that friendship with um, Paulette. And uh, it, it, they weren't going to grow up and be best friends, the two girls, but they learn something by talking to each other and kind of getting to know each other. And it turns out that uh, Paulette was extremely unhappy and she was mistreated at home. And her, um, you know, her she watched her mother iron her father's uh, clan robes. So she was caught in a world that had that she didn't make either. And so the two girls, very hesitant, you know, getting to know each other, was the beginnings of what hopefully future friendships can be. So um, while we're talking about that, how, uh, how does that, how is it different how you discuss uh, that period uh, in history and, and, and racism in that period uh, versus when we encounter it again in, in your most recent novel, In Blended, uh, where 11-year-old Isabella uh, is encountering that both in, in her school and also in the differences between um, her, her two households because, of course, she's, she's code-switching between um, her, her white mother's house and her black father's. Uh, home after they've divorced, and, and, and she's going back and forth. How does that change with the more modern setting? Um, well, because Stella is set in the 30s, standards were different in the 30s. Isabella's story takes place today, 
and we are living with whatever the standards and mores of social behavior exist now. Um, all schools are integrated now, at least they're supposed to be. But, of course, they're segregated by neighborhood and by uh, – schools are still se segregated by race, only not – it's not prescriptive. It's just that um, a school in a poor urban environment is going to be probably mostly African-American in certain neighborhoods, and a school in – um, a Bel Air-like suburb of a community is probably going to be mostly white students because that's the way social, that's the way society has set itself up as far as neighborhoods and neighborhood schools go. And yes, we tried integration in schools, and yes, we tried busing, and yes, we tried all of that. But as it stands, there is still a very diametrical difference in many, many neighborhoods and many communities and in the quality of school that these uh, that the children are receiving. You know, it hurts me to see that children in poor neighborhoods are receiving um, not a, a lesser education because I stand behind every single teacher that shows up every single day to teach those children. But they have fewer supplies. They have, they're still doing the hand-me-down books uh, because the schools in certain neighborhoods might not be able to afford um, the books in that schools in more affluent neighborhoods might. Um, I have, uh, um, um, I lost my thought. The, uh, oh, it went away. Anyway, the, um, the, the, it'll come back to me in a minute. The, but the, the, the code switching that Isabella has to do is because not just race, but because of her parents' divorce. So she has to figure out how she's going to walk the, a fine line of her mother who is white and her father who is black and she loves them both and they both adore her. They just don't like each other anymore. So Isabella has to uh, she goes to a school that is racially mixed but still there are racial, very stark racial differences within the school and within the classroom, um, she has to figure out how am I supposed to act at my mom's house and my mom doesn't have a whole lot of money and my mom works for Waffle House and, you know, is struggling to make ends meet. Her father is rich and wealthy and lives in uh, the very best neighborhood of the, of the city. That, the name of that community is Indian Hills. It's a real place in Cincinnati. And it's a place that uh, we used to drive through on Sunday afternoon to go, wow, look at those houses. You know, the mansion is sitting, <laughs> you know, 500 feet back from the, from the, from the perfectly uh, tailored lawns that were kept up by gardeners. But, you know, that neighborhood. 
And so this is where her father lives. And the fact that her father is affluent enough to live in that neighborhood, which previously would probably be a pretty much all-white neighborhood, but her father had reached a financial level to where he could afford to buy a house in that neighborhood. And I didn't want to bring up the problems about, you know, whether neighbors liked him or not. That that didn't matter. Uh, but the fact that he had reached that certain financial level. So Isabella has to figure out what to do with her father who has money and her mother who does not have so much. And But her biggest problem is not financial. It's social because she has to figure out um, how to live with her mother part of the time and her father the other part of the time and and not feel sliced in half, which she often felt. I'm talking about um, uh, schools and this, this sort of legacy of, of segregation that's, that's still with us. Um, I know you and I had uh, spoken off air. Uh, you've got you know 25 years uh, as an English teacher. Uh, you've been honored as a National Teacher of the Year, and you had mentioned to me off air that if, off air that if somebody were to ask if you wanted to be the Secretary of Education, you you would entertain that proposition. It, it wouldn't be an automatic no. Um, so if, if if that happens tomorrow, uh, poor Miss Devotes uh, decides that she needs to, to leave and spend more time with her 40 yachts, um, and the, the spot summer becomes available, uh, and you become the Secretary of Education, what, uh, what do you feel could be done immediately to start to address some of those uh, problems? Oh, I would love to be the Secretary of Education. Because, first of all, I actually understand education. And um, I was a, an educator. And so I understand the struggles of teachers, the struggles of schools, the struggles of parents, and how to connect the, the learning process to, um, to the children and make it meaningful for the children. We have gotten so much into um, prescribed lessons of study um, where everything has to be standardized. Everyone must teach the same way at the same time. And no two children are the same. You can't do that. You can't have a... Uh, uh, an educational system where they assume that everyone must know uh, this at the end of grade three and everyone must know this at the end of grade five. Me, I'm not ready to learn that until I get to grade five. And give me the options to be able to work out my own um, educational path. Let me play. Let me have music. Bring back music and art and gym, which that's the first thing they cut, you know, is, are the music programs, because, oh, that's unnecessary. And the art programs, oh, we don't need that. And that's what makes a whole human being is the art and the music and the creativity is what makes a whole person and what creates a learner. So if I was Secretary of Education, I would start with learning, and I would start with education, and I would get rid of tests. 
I'm not saying that we don't need to have um, evaluation at the end of um, a, a season of learning, that there should be an evaluation, but the world should not revolve around my test scores. I should not be defined by my test scores. My future should not be determined by my test scores, but my future should be determined about what I have learned and how well I can express what I have learned and how I can apply my learning to my life. Oh, that was good. <laughs> I do feel passionate about that. And, yes, I would love to be Secretary of Education. And I think we're completing your campaign speech on the fly right now. <laughs> Let's make sure we record that one really well so that when I need it, I'll have it. But, yes, I feel very strongly about that, about the need for uh, for learning and loving learning. Learning's not hard. You just need somebody who loves to teach it so the children will love to learn it. Of course, you've had the opportunity to teach all over the world. At one point, you were the uh, United States representative to uh, the Russian Book Fair. Yes, I went to the I went to the the, the book festival in Moscow. Um, I did some some teaching in China. Um, it's, the schools in China are run very differently than American schools, and you know you have to get used to the the, the, the system. And I've, I've I've had the opportunity to see the insides of lots of schools in lots of countries, and we have an amazing. Um, school system set up in the United States that's with just a little bit of love and softness can be made something really, really powerful and really, really meaningful for children in this country. What has uh, teaching in all those different environments taught you specifically about teaching? Because you were an English teacher, and you know my passion runs toward reading and writing. Uh, what has uh, all of that experience taught you specifically about the best ways to teach a uh, love of reading and a love for writing for, for multiple students? Um, children love to, they learn a love of reading by reading what they love. It's not hard. It's not rocket science. Um you, you you meet a child that says, I only like race cars. That's the only thing I care about. I'm going to be a race car driver. Then you give him books about race cars. You give him math projects about how fast race cars can go around, how, much gallon, how many gallons of gas it takes, what is the consumption as it goes around. And because he's interested in race cars, you have taught him way more than he would ever have learned by saying, okay, today we're going to learn um, consumption math. I am bored. No, we're going to learn race car math. You see what I mean? It's like individualized education. And I realize you cannot individualize learning for every single student. But if teachers have the option of getting to know their students and getting to know the needs of their students, it is possible a good teacher can do that within a, the confines of a classroom and can pro provide learning that is meaningful for a child. Children want to learn. They're, 
when you, you see the, the first day of school pictures that 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 parents always post mm-hmm. uh, for you know because hey you know Johnny is starting fifth grade or first grade or whatever because it's an exciting time and we send the children to school and then we tell them you can't move you can't get out of your seat you can't do this we're going to learn about um, you know, today we're going to do this and there will be a test at the end of the week and there will be a big test that at the end of the year. And if you do not pass this big test, uh, you are a failure at age eight. There's something <laughs> wrong with this system. Um, where we, there are, are many, 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 many cases of children who have, um, have, have been physically harmed by the excessive testing. It's not necessary to test. Um, it's necessary to know that the child has mastered the material that you have given them. But there are so many ways to show that mastery. And it's not necessary to have a standardized test that is required uh, that takes two full weeks out of the school year for testing. That's, that's insane. It doesn't make any sense. And how are these test scores applied the following year? They're not. It's just another test at the end of fifth grade and another test at the end of sixth grade. A series of tests. It takes several days of class of class time. We could be learning about the clouds instead of taking a test. Uh, well, we know why the uh, why the faculty of, of the schools are incentivized for those tests because you know they want to get their funding and um, hopefully more funding. Uh, but I, I can never figure out what the incentive is for the students to do well on the test other than a, a pat on the back. And you will if you don't do well, then you're likely to be held back and and have to do the third grade over again or do fifth grade over again while all of your friends and social standing is so important as children are growing. All of your friends have gone on, but you have to stay behind because you didn't pass a test because you don't test well or when you're looking at all those things and you've got a choice between A, B, C, or D and actually any one of them could be right. There's been so many articles written where they use actual test examples and the actual test questions from these standardized things that... um, that even adults couldn't answer that um, are I'm not a fan of standardized testing. I am a fan of evaluation, but not standardized testing. Not at all. I am not a fan. Um, Someone who is someone's making a lot of money off of testing. And it's not benefiting kids. It's benefiting whoever is the creators of these tests. What we got to do is figure out a way for them to still make a lot of money, but make a lot of money based on <laughs> teaching students and, and delivering a quality education. <laughs> if we get used all the money that we use to buy these tests and increase the salaries of teachers so that we could attract more and more people into the classroom. People want to be teachers, but they can't because they, they're they not paid enough. There's so many examples of teachers who uh, have to work second jobs 
in order to get enough money to 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 raise their families. There's something wrong with that. Teachers should be the highest paid and highest respected uh, members of our community because we are teaching your children. Therefore, pay us and we'll do a good job. And that will, we will attract the best and the brightest to go into the classrooms. You got my vote. Put, put all of that in the campaign speech and by golly. <laughs> all right. I'm going to call you now when I, when I get tapped to run for the office. Absolutely. I'll uh, head out on the <laughs> Okay. Well, all I need is a, um, the opportunity. Well, after uh, this podcast drops here, I'm sure there your phone will be ringing off the hook from, uh, <laughs> from the administration. Yeah. I was, when I was at the White House one time, I, I saw the, the Office of the Secretary of Education, and I was disappointed in how small it was. I said, oh, we'll have to improve on this. <laughs> that was 20 years ago, and I I already ha- saw the office and had plans for improving it, and I had to paint it and everything. <laughs> have you seen it since? Um, yes, like last year, year before, I think we were there for some event. Okay, so have they have they made improvements? Have they added at least a nicer chair or something? We just were going down the hall and peeking in. We weren't we didn't have an audience that time. Uh, it was a different event. Let me uh, pivot back to to books just a little bit here, because uh, we kicked around. But if we if we got through our whole conversation here, we didn't talk about out of my mind. Um, oh. So. Uh, something I wanted to make sure I asked you about was uh, Melody, uh, because I know you've been quite adamant that you did not want um, people to feel sorry for Melody. Um, why is that? Um, Melody, in the story of Out of My Mind, um, is a strong, resourceful, intelligent girl who just happens to not be able to walk or talk or communicate. And um, it seems like that doesn't go together to be strong and intelligent and not be able to walk or talk, but she is and she was. And she is, um, uh, she starts off the story saying, this is who I am, this is what I like. And then she gradually kind of tells you, you know, my, my wheelchair is pink. And, you know, it's okay, but, I, you know, I might have chosen a different color. And she's very outspoken. So everything that happens in the story happens from her mind since she can't speak. So as the author, I go into her mind and bring and write down her thoughts so that we can see what it's like to be in that world, to be so very uh, intelligent and trapped in a body that does not work and it it works the story works because we are able to see her life and see her struggles and see her anger at how tre- people treat her and how um, you know how difficult it is for her to convince the rest of the world that she's just like they are on the inside 
So what, uh, what kind of research did you have to do? What kind of preparation did you have to do to put yourself in that headspace? Um, I have a daughter who has a disability. She is not like Melody. People ask me all the time, and I say, she told me to tell you that she is not Melody. <laughs> so, uh, but that kind of gave me a peek into the world of children um, who learn differently and function differently in the world. So I had a lot of experience working with and being with uh, children and parents of kids who function a little bit differently in the world. And so, but Melody is a hundred percent fiction. Um, Melody came from someplace deep in my heart, and she was a little girl that needed a voice, and I was the one who was blessed to give her that voice. So um, I'm very, very proud of of Melody in the story, and of the book and how that it uh, has been such a blessing to so many people. Um, it's been translated into 22 different languages. It um, uh, and it has taken me around the world. I've I've, I've met um, I met a, a young man who was just like Melody in. Romania, and he was so, his mother brought him to the presentation, and he was so excited to meet me, and he couldn't talk, and he couldn't walk, but he was extremely intelligent, you could tell he was a melody, and he was just so excited to meet the person who had written his story, who explained what it felt like to be trapped inside his body. And I have pictures of him. He was just an amazing young man. And we laughed and joked, and he was just so happy because he had finally found um, somebody who understood what it was like. Uh, I got to speak about it in, in Egypt, in um I've been to many countries. Nobody's invited me to Paris yet, and it is. It has been translated into French, so that would be my next dream. I'd love to go to Paris. And Paris, if you're that. listening, get, get on it. Yeah. <laughs> the future Secretary of Education will hold you awake. Exactly. We're going to speak this into existence. <laughs> Why not? It's just that the story has resonated with so many people and uh, on so many different levels uh, because people sometimes walk past a person in a wheelchair uh, partly because they're not sure whether they should speak or not or whether they should say anything or not. And um, and so they avoid eye contact. And I was telling you earlier that there was, I had met, uh, I had hurt my leg one time and I needed a wheelchair in the airport. And I noticed that as I was being pushed through the airport, nobody made eye contact with me. 
not one person made eye contact with me. And I had not noticed that as a standing person, but as a person being wheeled, I was almost invisible. Nobody looked at me because maybe they were afraid, maybe they didn't want to upset me, they didn't want to insult me, maybe they were unsure, but nobody looked at me. And so that made me realize what it was like for Melody in the story. Nobody really looked at her the way we look at each other. The other thing in the story is where um, very early in the story she says, my name is Melody. It's important. And when I talk to young people at schools, I will ask them, what's your name? John, Bob, Billy, what's your name? Caleb, Nancy, Mary, what's your name? That's the only thing that we really own is our name. Our names are important. Call people by their name. And uh, the fact that she insisted on her, on people knowing her name and being aware of her as a human being in existence and taking the time to look at her in the, uh, when she's in the mall and having eye contact with her in the mall. Um, I once met, was in a, a store and I was um, trying on dresses and there was a lady there trying on dresses and she had a child with her in a wheelchair, a little boy. and he was just, he was rolling and he was making all kinds of noise and she was getting frustrated and so we came out of the dressing room at the same time and and the young man was, was really causing a problem and so I looked at him and I said, you're about sick of waiting for your mother to try on dresses, aren't you? And he said, yes. Because <laughs> if she tries on one more dress, you're going to scream, right? And he said, yes, yes, yes. And she said, oh, my goodness, it just never occurred to me. I said, he's an 11-year-old boy. You've got him sitting up here in the ladies' dressing room. And he just, and as, he, as they left, she rolled him away. And she turned around. He said, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like we don't see them as, um, as real human beings. And so I'm really proud of Melody that she got to be that real human being so that lots of people can understand what it's like to be her. So that, uh, that gentleman that, that came up to you, is that your favorite uh, reader reaction of all time? Or have you got another one that you stole away for uh, rainy days? Oh, oh dear, let me see. Uh, oh, I, I, it's almost every time I go someplace, I get really cool reactions. I get... Um, kids that want to hug me. I get, um, there was one little girl who wanted to, she wanted to, for everybody to leave the auditorium. And she said, I want to sing to you. And she sang me a song that she had made up herself. And it was this beautiful song of her own creation that she had made because of her strong feelings for me and the books and reading and what it had done for her. Um, they, I had a, a young lady who, uh, I used to have a cardboard cutout of me that teachers could order for their classroom. And, um, 
<laughs> it, it, it was it was funny for a while, and they used to dress it up for proms. <laughs> um, but this one girl was moving, and she was leaving the school, and she asked her teacher if she could take the cardboard cutout with her because that would remind her of of me and that visit that I made to her school. So we don't know how we touch people. And sometimes in very, very small ways and sometimes in larger ways. Um, and so I work really hard to make sure that the young people that I come in contact with, uh, that they have positive experiences and that they remember it uh, positively all the time. Like there was one little girl that um, helped me with a book signing. She was holding the books and helping the helping me to stack them up, you know, as a, people were coming through the line. And she wrote me several years later, and she said, do you remember that? She said, that was the most exciting day of my life, that I got to stand next to you and help you with that. And I think I gave her an early version of some, whatever the next book was, and, and she got a, a preview version before anybody else. Um, Little things, those kind of things that change the lives of human beings. And I'm just very, very blessed that I am able to be able to to be one of those people that helps touch the lives of children in a positive way. So for all the authors listening who are going out to school visits and, and interacting with children, what, what would you say is the, the key, the most important thing to remember when interacting with children to make sure that you're creating uh, a special moment that they're going to remember forever? In a school visit, um, it's sometimes hard because the crowds are sometimes large if you're in a gym or an auditorium. It's sometimes difficult. But um, it's important to call children by name uh, to say, what's your name? My name is Lucy. Okay, Lucy, tell me what your question is. That personalizes that moment for Lucy. And Lucy will forever remember that because her name was called and her name was was special at that moment. Um, oh, I could I could tell you lots of things about about school visits of things to do and not to do. Okay. The most important thing is the interaction with the children and making sure that they have a positive experience. Uh, sometimes in the auditorium, they will take the the kids with the disabilities and leave them in the very back of the room. And they say, oh, we'll just leave them back here because sometimes they make strange noises. No, bring them down front. I want them here so that they can see and they can experience what we're talking about. If you have to take somebody out, that's fine. I don't care. But I want them down front. I want them close so that they can uh, participate. I try not to be up on stage. I like to be down on the level that the students are at. Because when you're on stage, you're a stranger. When you're down on their level and I can walk up and down the aisles of their auditorium, uh, I'm a real person. I'm not a celebrity up on stage. I'm a person who is standing close enough to them that they could reach out and touch me if they wanted to. Um, it's important to call children by their name. Um, 
because that's all we own is our names, and that's important. Uh, it's important to answer their questions uh, with absolute seriousness, even if it's, uh, you know, I'm very, I make lots of jokes, and I'm silly, and I Dean, audience, uh, I apologize for the uh, technical difficulties we're, we're experiencing. You may hear a difference in the uh, audio, uh, as we've had to kind of improvise a little bit here. Uh, we lost something so incredible. Um, I, I uh, had almost chickened out because uh, how do you ask Mrs. Draper if she has seen a flying saucer? Um, but I, of course, I, you know, uh, regular esteemed audience that I ask most every guest, whoever comes on, if they've seen flying saucers and they, and they believed in them. And I just let this one go to the ether, except Mrs. Draper, you had such a wonderful answer. If I, you wouldn't mind repeating yourself. No one's ever going to believe me if they don't hear you say it. <laughs> uh, my father believed in flying saucers. He believed there was life on other planets and he wanted to go. If a spaceman came, he said, I'm ready to go. I want to know what it's like. So he always kept that in the back of my mind. But I have a picture of a flying saucer in um, a scrapbook someplace that was given to me by a boyfriend from many, 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 many thousands of years ago. Um, he was in the Air Force, and he said, this is an actual picture of a flying saucer. I don't know if it's true or not. It looks real to me, but it certainly did impress me when I was 17 years old. So um, uh, I don't know if that was true or not, but I would like to believe that there is intelligent life on other places than this little glowing ball. And I would like to be able to see at some time that there are other life forces out there. Um, you know, I'm a very strong proponent of Star Trek. I've watched every single Star Trek movie and the entire series on rerun 57,000 times. And, um, and I would like to believe that one day in the 22nd century that we can have the, the uh, Federation of Planets and and we go and boldly go where no one has gone before. I'd like to believe that, that we can. I, I think there's a very real possibility that that might be true. But the boyfriend telling you the context in which he got this picture? No, it was, it was secret, and he showed it to me, and it was illegal for him to show it to me. I really think he was trying to show off. <laughs> but I kept the picture. <laughs> well, it must not have worked because you kept the picture, but not the boyfriend. So no, 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 no. He's long gone. <laughs> but those would-be suitors who are thinking that maybe they can impress uh, folks with the flying saucer picture. I guess that's how that one ends. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I tell you what, I, I uh, with with the technical uh, issues that we've had, I'm uh, I'm thinking what we'll. What we'll need to do for tonight uh, is let me ask you one last question in lieu of all the questions that I'm worried we're going to lose uh, just to the, the technical problems. Uh, and, and that question is, if there was one piece of advice you could go back and give to your uh, former self when you were just starting to write, 
um, that would have made things easier for you, that would have made your your career up to this moment much much easier. And knowing uh, for all the authors who are listening, what would that advice be? What would you want you to know? I think I would want myself to know that this is a possibility. That because I didn't know this, the world of writing existed. I knew books existed, and I knew that there were authors, but they were all um, old dead people, you know. I didn't know any living authors. And so if I had known that there were living, breathing authors that I could talk to and that I find, I did get to meet uh, later on, like I met Virginia Hamilton. She gave me her her home phone number and I was too nervous to call her and I never did and I wish I had. Um, she said, call me anytime, whatever you need, just give me a call. And yeah, I was so overwhelmed with her, with her kindness to, that she was willing to do that for me. So I try to do that for young writers that uh, are coming up now. I don't give them my home phone number, but I try to give them as much encouragement as I can because, yes, your voice is needed. Yes, there's a child who needs to read that story. And now, I can't write for every single child in the world, and neither can you, but together all of us can write for the children of the world and find that one story that will take that one child to the next place that he needs to be. That will give them affirmation and, and and fulfillment and satisfaction. So there is a place for all kinds of writers, and there is a need for all kinds of writers, and there's a need for those words that um, that there is a child waiting for that needs your words. So go write them and create them. Where uh, where can esteemed audience find more about you online? Where can they connect with you and, and uh, find out more about your books? Uh, I have a website. It's SharonDraper.com, all one word, just SharonDraper.com. Um, for teachers, I have study questions for every single book. I provided that for the um, – I, I did that because I'm a teacher, and I know that that's the kind of thing that you need. So everything that you need to for analyzing the book, and I don't ask questions like, what color was the blue button on Mary's blue dress? I ask <laughs> questions like, why did Mary choose to wear the blue dress on that day? I write a one paragraph about it using the color blue within your answer. So um, there are teacher-written questions for every single book. There's essays, there's analysis. And you can pick and choose. You don't have to give them all. You can pick number one, three, and five, and the third essay question. Just It's there for teachers for whatever you need, and however I can be of assistance to you, the questions are there. Of course, as always, esteemed audience, you can find out more about me, what's going on with the podcast, uh, at uh, .com. Uh Make sure you tune in for our next episode with author Dan Gutman. Uh, and uh, Ms. Traper, I've been asking our guest to sign us off with the very ninja-like sign-off phrase, hi-ya and what have you. Will you sign us off? 
I've been delighted to be here and to talk to you today. This has been just glorious. So hiya and what have you.